and go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 this morning. If you're a guest, we're really glad that you're here. And if you need a Bible, there should be some hardback black ones there in the chairs around you. Feel free to grab one of those. And um, Luke chapter 3 this morning, we've been working our way through the book of Luke, verse by verse, uh, since Christmas. And uh, we're now to chapter 3. That's how, how quick we're moving around here. And, uh, but today we're going to get uh, an important story uh, that is kind of a turning point here in chapter 3. So verses 21 through 38 this morning is where we're going to land. And the question before us is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we're going to see the answer to that in a couple different ways in this text, okay? Um, so, a few weeks ago, uh, I had a little bit of a dilemma, actually quite a dilemma on my hands. Um, it was Saturday, and my two favorite basketball teams were playing against one another. And uh, so I sat there on the couch, and Ava was watching the game with me, and she said, Daddy, who are you rooting for? And I said, I don't know. I'm just going to sit here and just enjoy the game. Like, I, I didn't know how to answer that. I didn't really have an, a solution to that issue. And um, sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we have dilemmas that come up, and we're like, I just don't know the answer to this. I, I can't figure this out. Um, but there are other times where it's not okay. And one of those times when it's not okay is around this question of faith. Who is Jesus? We can't afford to let that go unanswered in our lives. We have to come up with a solution. And this has actually been a, an issue that's been worked through throughout church and history and all these things. And it's oftentimes um, set up in the tradition of a trilemma, actually, rather than a dilemma. And uh, this first was kind of espoused by John Duncan and Watchman Nee, some great theologies, theologians, but probably most famous by the author C.S. Lewis, if you're familiar with him. Um, in his book, Mere Christianity, he lays out this trilemma of, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? Maybe you've heard this before, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Let me read just a, a quick excerpt from the book here that will help us kind of set up the question today. Lewis writes this, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Many in our culture today still struggle with this question, with this trilemma, if you will, right? Was Jesus really God, or was he just another foolish religious leader who was duping the masses into his ways? Was he a, a great, generous, wise, humanitarian teacher? Or was, he set, or was he who he said he was? 
God in the flesh. That is the question before us this morning in the text. And I hope you're going to be able to walk away today with some greater certainty about who Jesus was. So the nail to this morning, the question is this, who is Jesus and why does it matter? Maybe the more important part of the question, why does it matter to us? Why does it matter to others in our lives and how can we share that with them? So let's go ahead and read the whole text this morning, and then we're going to walk back through three things we see here about Jesus. Start in verse 21 with me. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, and I'm not going to keep going. Um, that would be really humorous for you and really embarrassing for me to try to say all of those names, okay? But you'll notice there's a, a big long list here of all the people that fall into Jesus' lineage. A couple names I'll highlight for you that are important this morning that we're going to touch on. Down in verse 31, they track his lineage all the way back to a son of David. That's King David of the Israelites, the most famous king and best king they ever had. Further down in verse 34, he's also a son of Abraham, right? Uh, the father of the Jewish nation, so he's coming from that chosen people of the Lord. And then down in verse 38, the son of Adam, all the way back to the original man, and ultimately the son of God. All right, we're going to touch on all that here in a moment, but here's the first thing I want you to see in this text. Jesus is the human Son of God. Jesus is the human Son of God. So in verse 23 there, when it starts his genealogy, it says, Jesus began his ministry about 30 years of age. Now this is a really important turning point in the book of Luke, um, because this is, Jesus is getting ready to start his public ministry. Like, this, is, this is a big deal in his life. And notice here, Luke says that he is around 30. Today we would say he was, he was 30-something, okay? And not when we say 30-something, but we're actually like 40-something, and we're just trying to be 30-something. That's not that. Like, he was actually 30-something. Like, he was around the age of 30, which tells us that, hey, Jesus has been around for a minute, right? This isn't like a, a fly-by-night, flash-in-the-pan, secret appearance where he just showed up for a couple days or a couple weeks, and then he went away. He's been walking around on the earth in the flesh for 30 years, People knew him, right? There's clear evidence of his human existence. And so at this point, he's 30, and it says he's the son of Joseph, and then the son of all these other guys that are in his human lineage. This list right here that we have, this family tree, this human ancestry of Jesus, can be proved, it can be tested, and it's basically like Jesus' birth certificate. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about what proves your identity? Like in our country, the birth certificate is the most foundational form of identity. Right? This little piece of paper that some local government gives to you when you're born that says, you know, like this is who you are. And it's, it's, the, it's the first thing that identifies you as a person in that human line. That you are the son or daughter of so-and-so and so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so. You can trace it all the way back. 
And all other forms of identification require your birth certificate, right? Get a social security card, get a license, get a passport. What do they want to see? They want to see your birth certificate. It's the proof that you exist within the line of humanity. Well, this right here, this is Jesus' proof that he was human. This is his birth certificate, that he was in the line of all these human men and was born at this point in time in history. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now right here, John calls him the word, which was his title for Jesus at this point in his gospel. But it says here that he became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, he was born into humanity, and he lived here on earth, and yet it says his glory was as of the only Son from the Father. He was born as a human, but he was still full, full of the glory of God that was shining through this human frame. He was, as we've said before, he was fully God and fully man. Two natures existing in one person. This was already confirmed earlier in the book of Luke when the angel spoke to Mary, said you're going to have a son, but he's also going to be the son of God. When the angels come down and talk to the shepherds, say the Messiah has been born, God is here in the flesh. When Simeon confirms it with his prophecy over Jesus, this has already been laid out for us, but here Luke's going to make it even more apparent that Jesus was the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, who had taken on human form. And this is his lineage. Now go up to verse 21. So now we're back in the story part, right? And it says, now when all the people were baptized. So last week we talked about all the crowds were coming to John the Baptist because they wanted to be baptized. So he's baptizing these like large swaths of people. And it says that Jesus also was baptized with them. He joined them in baptism. Why would Jesus do that? Because you remember what John's baptism was for? It was for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Two things that Jesus didn't need. Right? He was perfect. He was sinless. He didn't need to repent of anything. He didn't need forgiveness for anything. So why would Jesus be baptized here? Well, we're not the only ones who are confused about that. John was actually a little confused about that. If we go over to Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, look at this. Chapter 3, verse 13 in Matthew. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, no, no, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, con- then he consented. So John's like, I don't, what? I, me baptize you? Don't, like, you need to dunk me. Like, I'll just, I'll just get in line and you can take over and I'll just like, you do the thing. But Jesus says, no, this has to happen because, he says, it has to fulfill all righteousness. That's his reason that he gives. And so John's like, oh, yeah, righteousness. Okay, yeah, uh, what's that mean? (laughs) What do you mean to fulfill all righteousness? That's not clear, right, yet. But Jesus actually clears it up for us later on because Jesus' baptism here is going to become symbolic of his future baptism meaning his future death and resurrection 
that would bring all righteousness to God, those who believe in him. He says this a couple different times when he's talking about his impending death. Look at Luke 12, 50. He tells them, he says, I have a baptize, baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And he's talking here metaphorically of his coming death on the cross. Mark 10, 38, similarly, Jesus said to his disciples, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Again, referring to his impending death on the cross. And so this imagery of the baptism is, is him showing that, hey, I'm getting ready to do this for real. Like what you're doing symbolically right now with John is coming through me on the cross and through the resurrection. And then the same imagery is carried over today for us in Christian baptism. Listen to Paul's explanation in Romans 6. He says, we were buried, therefore. Who gets buried? Dead people, right? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so when we baptize people, we use that language, right? That we are buried with him in death, we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's the picture of baptism. And Jesus was participating in that here with the people. He was coming alongside them to identify with them and ultimately to deliver them from their sin. So the first thing we see here about Jesus' identity is that he came to be like us in order to save us. Jesus was the human Son of God. He came to be like us in humanity in order to ultimately go to the cross and save us from sin. So first, he was the human Son of God. Secondly, number two, Jesus is the Holy Son of God. What's interesting about Jesus' baptism is it is one of the few stories, one of the very few stories that is actually recorded in all four of the Gospels, right? There's, there's very few that actually repeat in all four, but this one makes it into all four accounts of Jesus' life, which tells us that like, this is really important. This is a really important point in his life because it marks him, it marks his identity clearly as Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and it prepares him to step out into his public ministry. And it says here in Luke's account that when he was baptized, that the heavens were opened, which is Scripture's language to describe a divine revelation is coming. That something's going to come down from heaven and reveal something that wasn't there before. And in this case, it's the same thing with Jesus. And we see it in three ways. First, it says that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. The heavens opened, the Holy Spirit comes down, and this detail is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Right? They all say that it came down like a dove. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Not that it was a dove, right? It's a, it's a picture, it's a metaphor, but it was something like a dove. But interestingly, Luke here says, he's the only one that says this, that, it came to, that the Holy Spirit came down in bodily form. Which gives us a hint that it wasn't just a vision, right? It wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, a, a metaphor or hyperbole. Like there was actually something physical that came out of the sky and came down onto Jesus that was something like a dove. 
And that's really unique because we don't see that anywhere else in Scripture where the Holy Spirit manifests himself in some type of like bodily, physical form. But he did so for Jesus. And we know this is confirmed that it wasn't just Jesus who saw this because over in John's account, John the Baptist says, I saw it. He attests to the same thing, to seeing the Holy Spirit come down to him in this form of a dove. And so we see the Holy Spirit show up in this divine revelation at Jesus' baptism. And then it says, a voice came from heaven. Okay? And, and he just kind of assumes that we know who that is. Right? Like he doesn't tell us, but like anytime there's a voice from heaven, that's God. Right? Like that's God the Father. That's how he does things. All throughout Scripture, he always reveals himself through speaking, through the Word. Like he always speaks to people. That's how God reveals who he is in various ways. And so God the Father is speaking here from heaven, and then he says this. He says, you, talking to Jesus, you are my beloved son. God the Father himself declares that Jesus is the Son of God in human form. That right there, no matter what anybody else says or thinks or tries to prove, when God the Father says it from heaven to all there who are hearing, like, this is all you need. This is the proof that he was indeed the Son of God. And in this moment, we actually have the clearest revelation of the Trinitarian Godhead. Right? You have God the Father speaking from heaven. You have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. You have Jesus there in bodily form. All acting together in concert and yet individually present. And then the Father says this statement. He says, with you I am well pleased. It could also be translated most pleased. Or I am pleased above all else. And he's actually, there's an allusion here to an old prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 42.1 says this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the perfect servant of God. He is sent as the Messiah to bring perfect justice to all. And in this moment, the Spirit has come down upon him. God is delighting in him because he is the Holy Son of God. He is the perfect one who will fulfill the will of the Father in every way. Which brings us to a really interesting question. What is the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Meaning, how did they interact during Jesus' human life? When Jesus was here on earth, what role did the Spirit play in his life and in his ministry? I think it's really easy for us to assume, logically, that all of Jesus' teachings, his miracles, his healings, his, his perfection that it all simply came from the fact that he himself was God, right? And God can do those things. And so just in his own divine nature, that he did all these wonderful things in Scripture. But I think when we take that route, it leads us to put too much emphasis 
on his divinity at the expense of his humanity. Here's what I mean by that. Listen to this verse in Hebrews 2. 17 says, Therefore he, had, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect, so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, what Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus didn't cheat. He didn't cheat his human experience by using his divine nature. Right? He never gave up his divine nature. He was always God. He never lost that. But he chose not to use it in any way that would negate a full human experience including all of our weaknesses, including all of our temptations, including all the things that we experience, he literally fully experienced those things just like us. And so if he didn't use his divine nature to shortcut those things, listen to Philippians 2, 6 through 7. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, he humbled himself. He submitted himself to God the Father, to his will. He submitted his power to serve God and the redemption plan that was put in place. And he had to do it, it says here, in the likeness of men. In human form. So that leaves us with this question then. How did Jesus, if he didn't use his divine powers so that he could have a full human experience, how did he do all the remarkable, miraculous things that we see in Scripture? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. One of the early church fathers, Basil of Caesarea, he referred to the Holy Spirit as Jesus' inseparable companion. That the Holy Spirit was empowering Jesus' life from birth all the way through his ministry. And we see this all throughout Scripture. I'm going to give you some examples today. There's more that I can't get to all of them. But I'm going to give you some examples from three different stages in his life to illustrate the Holy Spirit's work. First, let's look at his birth through growth, right? What we've already studied so far in Luke. We already know that he was born because of the Spirit's presence, that the Holy Spirit came down and impregnated Mary, and, and like, that was all through the power of the Spirit and his influence. And it's further solidified in Isaiah chapter 11, where this is already prophesied to happen. 11 verses 1 and 2 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Look here. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So last couple weeks ago when we studied Jesus, how he grew, remember that? How he grew in wisdom and stature and understanding. Isaiah is saying that was through the power of the spirit resting upon him. That's how he was able to understand all these things in the temple that nobody else understood. 
because the Spirit was at work. Then we get to his baptism, his temptation, his ministry, like we're looking at today and forward. And it says here, we've already seen that he received the Spirit at his baptism. And in John 1, 33, it says this, that the Spirit also remained on Jesus. So not only did it come down in the form of a dove, but it also remained on him from that point forward. That's what John tells us. And then right after this, we're going to study this next week, in Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and that the Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and then after he had overcome that temptation, that he returned to ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are all direct phrases from Luke chapter 4. Then right after he comes back from that, he goes to the synagogue, he takes a scroll, and he reads this scripture, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And it starts like this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is reading this about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's like, hey, this is me, and the Spirit is upon me to do all these great works of ministry that we're then going to see him do throughout the rest of the Gospels. Furthermore, in Matthew 12, 28, one of the scenes where Jesus is casting out demons, this is what he says, that he casts out demons by the Spirit of God. That's his explanation of how he does what he does. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, later on, Peter is preaching, he's teaching people about Jesus, and he says that Jesus went about doing his ministry because God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit. That's Peter's explanation of Jesus' power in ministry. And so we see this evidence all through the scripture of how he was empowered by the Spirit to do these, and then we get, at the end, we get to his death and his resurrection. Listen to Hebrews 9, 14. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, and then it goes on. So, do you remember in the garden when Jesus is just in agony over what's, got, what's getting ready to happen, right? Like, he's, he's just, he's praying, he's crying, he's sweating blood. Like, he is in his human state, in his humanity, it is so hard to face death. He, it's so hard to concede to this. And Hebrews tells us that the only way he was able to do it is that he ultimately submits through the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered him to step into that. And then in Romans 1.4, Paul says this, and that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Even Jesus' resurrection was through the power of the spirit, Paul says. And so we see that Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit to fulfill his mission from the Father while still being 100% man and 100% God. Do 
you all know what a hustle is? I'm not talking about, not like a side hustle, like that's a cute term we use today to talk just about like a part-time job. That doesn't make it sound any fancier, I'm just telling you right now. But, but like a real hustle, like in basketball or sports or like in poker or at a pool table, like it's when somebody's really, really good, but they pretend to be bad and kind of get your guard down so they can then power up over you, Right? Sometimes, I think if we're not careful, we can start to think about Jesus' humanity as a hustle. Like, yeah, he was human, but he was really God, so the humanity doesn't really count. Right? Like, he's different than us. He was Jesus. That's not what's happening here. Jesus' humanity was not a front for his true identity as God. He wasn't masquerading as a man, but actually just kind of coasting by on his divine powers. Jesus wouldn't do that to us. He wouldn't, he wouldn't try to deceive us like that. What we do see in Jesus is that he was a perfect model, a perfect model of what it means to love God and to submit everything to the Holy Spirit. Jesus never sinned. He was perfectly holy, son of God, son of man. And because he never sinned, he never quenched the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. He had full access to all of the Spirit for everything. And this is how God worked. This is how powerfully God can work through someone who lives fully submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to model how holiness brings the power of the Spirit to our lives. Sometimes the American church, the modern American church, has gotten so focused on trying to be cool and relevant that we have forfeited holiness. And cool relevance does not bring the power of the Spirit. Holiness before the Lord. Not that we're perfect, we never will be, but we are striving by His grace, by His power, to be holy and to walk by His word. And when we do that, the power of the Spirit will fill us and fill our lives and do miraculous things for His glory. Jesus is the proof of that. He is the Holy Son of God. And then thirdly, Jesus is the long-awaited Son of God. Verses 23 through 38, again, this is Jesus' genealogy, right? And oftentimes people will ask, like, why is this in here? Like, why do we have to put this in the Bible for us to have to read through on our, on our like, you know, daily reading plans? And we're like, ah, oh, again, like, JesusAncestry.com page, I really have to read this right now? Like, that's what we're doing? Like, why would God put this in here? I'm going to address that in a second, but before I do that, I first want to address some criticisms of this passage. See, there's actually two genealogies of Jesus in the Bible. There's one here in Luke, chapter 3. There's also one in Matthew, chapter 1. And here's the rub. They have different names. Like, they don't line up. 
So we're like, what, what do we do with that? Like, if we're going to say he's a real person, if he's really a human, how do we make sense of the fact that we have two different family lines for Jesus? Well, let's deal with that this morning, all right? Because the first name that goes sideways is his grandfather. It's not like five or six or seven generations deep. We're like, oh, yeah, I can't remember who, what's his name was, and so we'll just make one. Like, no, this is like his, his papa. Like, he, they don't even know, like, who, who was that, right? And if you're a grandparent in the room, you're like, hey, if my grandson is Jesus, I want credit for that. Like, I get my name in there, right? Like, you know, like, James lost another job this week, and Judas is, like, backpacking through Egypt trying to find himself. But Jesus, he's killing it, right? Like, put my name in his list. So, like, this is really important. All seriousness, this matters because if he is really who we say he is, it should be proven through genealogy. So why do we have two? There's two possible solutions for how this works. Okay? We don't know exactly which one is the right one, but they both make sense. They both could make sense of this. The first one is that one of the lineages belongs to Joseph and the other lineage belongs to Mary. That's kind of the oldest, most traditional explanation, right? And here's how it goes. It goes something like this. If we go to verse 23 that we just read earlier, right, it says that Jesus was the son, as was supposed of Joseph. Meaning, that's Luke's kind of way of reminding us, like, hey, Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father, right? He was his adopted father. And so, if that's true, which it is, then he technically is only from Mary's bloodline. Like he, it wasn't actually from Jesus or Joseph's bloodline. He was from Mary's bloodline. And so this genealogy here is actually Mary's in Luke. And the reason that it says Luke, I'm sorry, the reason it says Joseph was the son of Heli is because either A, uh, they meant son through marriage, right? Like he's married Mary, so now this is the son, this is the, the male part of the lineage that they're tracing. Or it could be that Heli didn't have any sons. And oftentimes when that happened, they would adopt one of their son-in-laws as a son to then carry on the family line and to be their heir and so on and so forth. So Joseph could be the adopted son of Heli or could just be the line of Mary. And so this is Mary's family line that we're tracing in Luke. And then Matthew would be Joseph's family line. Okay, that's the different names. Another solution, though, is that Joseph himself actually had two family lines. Like, well, how, I think I know birds and the bees. How does that work? Like, how do you have two how do you have two families? Well, in Jewish culture, it was important, it was always important to keep the family line going, right? And so in instances where a married man died before having children, they would practice what we, they called Leverite marriage, meaning that the brother of the deceased man would come and marry the widow and bear children with her in the brother's name, right? And so in that case, if that happened here, Joseph would have one father biologically but he would have a different father legally because he would carry on the name and the lineage of his original father who died, right? So he could have two different lines here. So Heli could be one and Jacob, which is the name of the one in Matthew, could be the other lineage for Joseph. Could also be a scenario where Joseph was born and then his dad died when he was young. His mom remarried and the new guy adopted Joseph. And so Joseph has, again, has two fathers, a biological father and a legal father, and they're tracing two different lineages here for Joseph along those lines. So there's a couple different solutions on how this works and how this comes together. What's important, though, is both accounts 
eventually end up in the same place. Right? The first parts are different, but then when they get to King David, it all lines up. Both accounts take it back to King David. And after that, you do have a couple names that are different, which is pretty common in biblical genealogies because sometimes men would have alternate names at different points in their life, so they could be using different names for different guy, or the same guy. Or they would also skip generations at times in genealogies. So they would only include the ones that were important to whatever point they were making um, with that, and they wouldn't necessarily hit every generation in there. And so that could be part of it as well. But nonetheless, it shows us here that it does trace back to the same line of David, which is the main point that Luke is trying to drive home to us here. Okay? So this, these two differences, if you've ever heard this, if anyone's ever asked you about it, or if you're ever like, I don't know what to make sense of that, like this is historically how we can see that Jesus was still legitimately a man from a human lineage, even with these two different options. Okay? So why do we care? <laughs> why does any of that matter for our faith in Jesus? Let's do four things, four lessons that we learn from Jesus' genealogy as we close up today, okay? Number one, he is the son of man. Maybe the most important thing Luke is trying to tell us here is like, hey, he wasn't a myth. He wasn't a legend like some Greek god that was just made up, right? He was a real man in history. We can track his family line. That's the first thing we need to know. Jesus, he is the son of man. Number two, he is the son of David. Again, this is the famous King David of the Old Testament of Jewish rite. And it's the same King David who God said, through your line, I'm going to send the Messiah. The biggest prophecy about the Messiah was he's coming from David. So the fact that Jesus tracks back to David here shows us that he is, again, God in the flesh, the Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it says he is the son of Adam. This one's really interesting because most genealogies in the Bible, they trace it back to Abraham, and then they stop. Because he was the father of the Jewish nation, that's God's chosen people, that's really the most important thing, so that's as far as we have to go. Right? That's what most people think about. So they stop at Abraham. Matthew's account stops at Abraham. But Luke traces it all the way back to Adam, the first man, the universal man. Because Luke wants us to remember that Jesus came for all mankind. Not just for the Jewish people. He came for all people who would believe in him and have faith. And Luke wants that to always keep that. You're going to see that over and over again in the book of Luke. He keeps pointing us back to this. Jesus is for everyone. For everyone who believes. And then lastly, he tells us that he is the son of God. Now obviously Luke here is referring first to Adam who was the son of God in the sense that he was the first man that God created, right? He was created from God's hands. But in that phrase, he's also calling back to this title we've used for Jesus so many times already, that he is the son of God. Another way that we oftentimes say that is he is the last Adam. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
In other words, what Adam failed to do when he failed to live as the perfect son of God and he sinned in the garden, as we fail every day to live as the perfect children of God that we have been called to be, Jesus came and he succeeded where all of us fail. He lived as the perfect, human, holy, long-awaited Son of God. And therefore, he now has the name that is above every name. And at that name, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow because he is the Lord. Jesus came to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and be raised from the grave so that we can have eternal life. He is the Lord. And so we go back to the question, who is Jesus? And why does it matter? John maybe best tells us how it matters at the end of his gospel. He says, but these are written, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus was not a liar. He was not a lunatic. He was the Lord. He is the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God, And it matters because he is the only way that we can have eternal life. He's the only way that we can be forgiven for our sins and have eternity in heaven with God. But we must believe to have life in his name. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we bow our heads before you today in worship, in humility, in awe of this truth, God, this very truth that you would empty yourself and come to earth for us. It's just mind-boggling. Leaving your throne, foregoing your power, suffering with your creation, all to save us. Lord, this is too marvelous for us to even comprehend. today, Lord, we, we have seen. We believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came for us. So in our brokenness and our need, Lord, we worship. We worship you alone as the King of kings and the Lord of are the Christ. We pray this in your powerful name.